Hello, it's Thursday 14th of April. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will sift through the potential impacts of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for travel, tourism and the regional economic outlook. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, regular listeners to the show will know that we recently completed an eight-part series called Two Years of Travel Disruption. And over the past year or so, we have been saying regularly that the economic dislocations of the COVID-19 pandemic would have long-term consequences for the supply and demand of travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and across Asia-Pacific. And of course, we are seeing those right now. But on top of those, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has added an entirely new and far-reaching context, not just for our region, but for the whole world. At the same time, we are seeing the ongoing effects of COVID-19, which are causing travel and supply demand issues everywhere. Uh, We've seen in the past week, uh, for example, airports in the UK and Australia. And now, of course, we have the COVID-19 lockdowns in China, which will have economic impacts throughout the world. So on today's show, we're going to try and analyze the various factors that could impact not just the way we live and travel in the coming months, but also the economies and societies in which we live. So before we start, you know, we we recognize this is a very complex issue. There are lots of unknowns, both now and in the future, but the impacts are already being felt and will likely become more entrenched in the coming weeks and months. So we're going to look at this in four sections. So the first is really these enduring effects of COVID. The second is the initial and current war impacts um, on travel. We've called section three, um, maybe a little bit pessimistically, the looming headwinds. <laughs> and, um, number four, looking at what, what are the big questions that are up ahead? Because of course, you know, we, we're not saying we have the answers. I think we have more questions than answers, but what are those questions? So let's look first then at this enduring impact of, of COVID-19. All right, Gary. Yeah, and I guess as we've been talking about, Hannah, over the past two years, but particularly over the past six to eight months, um, the issue really in Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia is this late and slow starting travel recovery. If we look at the data from around the world at the moment, we we do see very different patterns in terms of airline traffic in North America, uh, in Europe and here in Southeast Asia. That's one of the things that we're we're getting used to is the fact there is this huge dislocation in terms of recovery and the speed of that recovery. Uh, And that's really showing, isn't it, Hannah, in the, the current airline capacity figures in this region? Yeah, absolutely. So if you looked at airline capacity in Southeast Asia last week, that was minus 41.4% compared to the corresponding week in 2019. And only Northeast Asia was worst in percentage terms at minus 41.6%. So not not too much in it. Although this available seat volume is more than double that of Southeast Asia. So we're really seeing, you know, this this very slow recovery across Asia. And like you say, this, this is largely due to these very strict border controls that we have had in the region. And only now, really at the beginning of April, the beginning of Q2, are we really seeing, you know, significant openings of the borders. Yeah. And you you compared there Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, you know, there are two big differences there. One is that Southeast Asia is is open, hasn't opened up pretty, pretty slowly. Um, Northeast Asia also very, very slowly, but the big dynamic market there, of course, is China. And obviously so much 
uh, air capacity has been taken out in recent weeks because of the lockdowns there. Um, so, you know, even comparing the, the two regions is, is, it has its own problems. Um, but the, the main issue is really in terms of uh, the, the industry is rebuilding demand because we're actually rebuilding from scratch. If, if you look at countries uh, or, or regions around the world, North America or, or Europe in particular, and over the past two years, they did have travel periods, particularly in the summer seasons, they reopened, there were travel flows. But here in Southeast Asia, we had pretty much two years of nothing, didn't we? It was a complete shutdown. So uh, demand is being rebuilt almost from zero. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And that's both domestically and internationally. Domestically was incredibly limited, like we keep saying last year. Um, and it was only towards Q4 of last year that really we saw domestic travel starting to take off again. That's continued throughout 2022 a little bit quiet I think at the beginning of the year because of concerns over Omicron and now the borders are reopening so it is like you say it's it's starting from scratch it's you know airports looking for for airlines to come in or airlines trying to get landing rights for certain countries and trying to assess whether there is demand or enough demand to be able to open up flight routes so it it really is back from scratch and of course the other layer to this is we still have those very high levels of COVID across the region, really. I mean, we, we can still say that some some countries are doing much better than others, a lot lower cases. But this inevitably impacts manpower um, because you then see, you know, if cabin crew are off sick with COVID or airport handling staff are off sick, um, you've got these manpower shortages as well. Um, so you, you, you've got these kind of volumes starting to increase, but at the same time, perhaps the manpower due to COVID isn't there. And then just in general, there are manpower issues anyhow, just with people being taken out from the industry over the past two years. Yeah, absolutely. So those are really the kind of key lingering effects of COVID-19 and war or no war, those would be happening right now. We would be facing those dislocations and trying to rebuild not just the in industry, but the infrastructure around it uh, over the coming months. That would have happened anyway. So we've kind of set the scene there, Hannah, of these lingering COVID effects. Now let's have a look at the impact of the Russian war in Ukraine, which is now 50 days. It, it started, I think it was on the 24th of February, uh, 50 days in now. There's no sign that this is going to end anytime soon. It doesn't look as though there's going to actually be an escalation, certainly in the eastern part of Ukraine. So let's have a look at what were the initial impacts of the war here in the region. Mm, yeah, and I think a good place to start with that is to see what countries within ASEAN's um, you know, overall attitude was towards this war. Um, and it, it's kind of interesting. So the first uh, UN resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, two ASEAN countries actually abstained from that vote, Vietnam and Laos. Um, whereas Cambodia, Indonesia, Myanmar, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore and Thailand all voted to support that. Now, you might be wondering, as I did when I read that, Myanmar, really? But you have to remember that this is still the previous government who are sat in the United Nations, not the junta, who are very much uh, very pally um, with Russia. Um, and, you know, the, the ASEAN kind of consensus around this, as as always, is a little bit weak, really. I mean, they have called to stop violence. They have not really gone much further than that, I think, given what we have seen with Myanmar, that is not a huge surprise. Um, but there are certain countries that have stood their ground. So Singapore has imposed sanctions and they are particularly concerned um, about, you know, that the, the foreign minister, Vivian Balakrishnan, um, had said, you know, we cannot accept the Russian 
government's violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of another sovereign state. And they are particularly concerned about bigger states invading smaller states. And of course, them as a a very small state, you know, really drawing the line in the sand there. Um, But it's interesting now. So that was the initial vote at the UN. And it's interesting now to see what the latest vote was, which was last week, which was this um, United Nations General Assembly resolution to suspend Russia's membership in the UN Human Rights Council. And here's where things change. Um, So instead of just abstaining as Laos and Vietnam did last time, they actually voted against this motion in favour where Myanmar, again, this is not the junta, and the Philippines to suspend Russia's membership, but abstained Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore and Thailand. So you are kind of seeing these shifting patterns. And of course, they are you know, when, when you look at their interdependence on Russia, many of them, particularly Vietnam and Laos, get a huge amount of their military arms um, from Russia. Um, and they are all trying to play this balancing act um, between Russia and the West. Geopolitically, it, it is interesting to see now where where the chips are falling, you know, um, and, and that some of them are now abstaining from votes, whereas before they were voting to condemn. What's your take on that, Gary? Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, one of the things that I guess one of the underlying motifs that we've been talking about for two years during the pandemic is I, I, this sort of smokescreen around ASEAN and what it actually is and, and how actually integrated the, the the 10 member states actually are, how they have in, incredibly different geopolitical interests, uh, national interests, uh, yet somehow they they c- kind of gather around this sort of loose collection of, uh, as you said, uh, interests, um, basically because they're, they're in the same region. They ASEAN was basically set up to stop them fighting each other, really. Um, but when it comes to these big votes, you know, the, those schisms just become very, very apparent. And as you said there, uh, some countries were in favour, some were against, and some abstained. And you also made a really, really interesting point a few moments ago there related to Myanmar because of course we do have an ongoing conflict in the region here in Myanmar and there's been little consensus between ASEAN in terms of how to deal with that um, problem and and that seems to be getting worse we've seen this week bombings and uh, and shootings in Yangon um, so there seems to be an escalation there in the major cities and so it's happening out in the regions anyway um, so yeah we, we have problems on our own doorstep uh, which we haven't been able to solve uh, and solving you know and coming together as a consensus on such a big global issue as Ukraine and Russia just seems to be beyond the region at the moment. So let's look at tourism itself and what kind of role Russia has to play within tourism in Southeast Asia. And of course, you know, headlines were were lit up, I think, with lots of, of stories along the lines of, you know, Russian tourists getting stuck in Thailand there were around five thousand, uh, they say Russian and Ukrainian tourists, an estimate who were in Thailand, whether they were entirely stuck is another question, I think, because we we saw authorities do things like set up an emergency helpline uh, for for Russians to be able to call or Ukrainians to be able to call in case they needed help. And apparently that had very few, <laughs> actually had very few phone calls, which is kind of interesting. Um, but certainly, you know, if we were looking um, in the, the early reopening stages, I think for Phuket, Russia has been a top source market. Um, in 2019, Russia was the seventh biggest market in 2019 um, for Thailand, but it actually had one of the lowest per capita spends, which I thought was also an interesting stat. And now, of course, 
the winter time, which was when all of these headlines were starting to come out, you know, in kind of February or so, that was a peak travel time for Russians to come into Southeast Asia. Um, you know, they, they, they are snowbirds. Uh, they like to avoid the Russian winter. And therefore, if they are not coming in to Southeast Asia now uh, in, in the volume that they were, it is perhaps less of an issue than if that had happened in really the peak winter time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, you produced a, a graph showing this and it is sort of like a, a protracted U-curve really in terms of Russia coming into the region. Uh, but you mentioned there both Thailand and Vietnam. So you have at the beginning of the year, the cold months of so January, February into March as well. And then the end of the year, usually November and December is when it picks up again. And then the middle, you know, the months in between, it tends to, to, to plateau out so that, you you know, you do have these the, the, the end end points of the year and the beginning point of the year are certainly the the drivers of Russian and, and Ukrainian travel into this region. Uh, we won't have that for the for the upcoming months. And, and then, of course, you've got the, the the issue that Chinese travelers aren't here either. So in terms of rebuilding um, economy, travel economies at the moment without those two key markets is pretty difficult. Uh, that's why everybody's looking to India. But in terms of the, the Russian travelers for next year, well, at the moment, we don't really know, do we? There's this huge issue about uh, cancellation of flights out of Russia. Some of those seem to be being put back into the system, but you know there are issues in terms of the the, the leasing of, of Asian, uh, sorry, of Russian commercial airliners. Whether they would actually be uh, sequestrated if they moved into other countries, will, will some countries block the sequestration of, of Russian airlines? We we just simply don't know at the moment. But that's certainly one of the issues that's upcoming, I guess, towards the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. And then you have the whole issue of how do they make payments? Um, you know, with, with the withdrawal of uh, Visa and MasterCard and Amex, um, Russian tourists have got pretty limited means to be actually be able to pay when they are in the destination, which is, of course, another concern for um, inbound tour operators in the region. If you're handling Russian tourists, um, you want to make sure that you can get paid, especially in you know, the, the fragile economic situation that you're likely to be in right now after two years of not being open. So we've got that side of it, of course. We have this, inevitably, there are going to be fewer Russian tourists into the region, and that is going to impact tourism recovery here. So, for example, the tourism ministry in Thailand, who loves the target, we've talked about this, um, have lowered their target from 10 million to 7 million on the basis of this. Um, so that, I think, certainly tourism boards and tourism ministries are, are feeling a little bit concerned about this this previously kind of lucrative source market who was very willing to travel throughout the pandemic, suddenly not traveling anymore. But the other issue then we're now facing is jet fuel, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, well, certainly that was, in, that was, that was a, an emerging issue just before the invasion. Oil prices hugely volatile anyway, have been since pretty much the beginning of the year. And that increases the, the, the pressure on jet fuel prices. The underriding issue of that, of course, is that so many airlines have had large parts of their fleet grounded over the previous two years, so they haven't been hedging their fuel prices, and so it hits them much, much harder when these when these fuel price shocks come into the system. So we saw that oil prices were rising, jet fuel prices were rising. I think oil itself is up around about 65% over the past year, which is huge. Uh, the actual crude oil price has just gone <clears throat> back over $100 a barrel, and it looks like it's going back up again. Um, so at the start of the crisis, we did see jet fuel prices spike hugely. 
And now that was offset slightly by the OPEC nations putting more oil supply back into the system. But obviously, at the same time, the US uh, implemented a ban on uh, purchasing Russian oil. Russia is the, the third biggest producer of oil in the world. So we have, we have this hugely volatile situation. That's certainly not um, going anywhere at the moment. We have a real, real issue in terms of the supply and demand of oil, and that obviously impacts jet fuel prices. Um, and that obviously is going to get passed on and already is being passed on, isn't it, Hannah, into, into the prices that we pay for our flights. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, airlines are coming out of this. They don't really have that that that, that safety net for them anymore. So we've seen airlines like Air Asia reimpose fuel surcharges. And this is the first time that they have done that since 2015. Uh, Malaysia Airlines is um, imposing one. Airlines in the Philippines have have called for that. But the CAB has said no um, right now. Vietnam Airlines also wants that price ceiling adjusted, although they are always calling for the price ceiling to be adjusted, it has to be said. Um, and the Thai Airlines Association has also um, been asking the government to be able to impose surcharges. So there is definitely this impetus within airlines. And of course, I, you know, I, I think once we see one airline do it um, or get permission to do it if they need that, the other airlines are going to follow if they see that they can make some more money, um, especially when their margins are at really, really low levels because they're unable to fly um, at high load factors. Yeah, I agree. And I think these these problems are definitely cumulative as well, as we've seen, you know, that's the situation as it is right now. Those are some of the airlines that have imposed fuel surcharges. But, you know, the longer that this goes on, the more volatile the oil and jet fuel prices become. You know, everybody will have to join the party. And we may even see fuel surcharges going up even higher. Uh, we also have the issue possibly in the summer um, when there is a huge demand for jet fuel, particularly in the European and the US markets, that we could see more scarcity of jet fuel. You know, the price could get even higher. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen in, in China, but if Chinese domestic uh, travel is back on on track um, in the summer as well, there'll be huge demand for jet fuel there. So, you know, the, 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 the demand for it will actually de- have a huge impact on the price that airlines will have to pay. And on top of that, um, we've also got to look at flight rerouting. This has less of an impact for, I suppose, the southernmost Southeast Asian countries. If we're looking at flights from um, longer haul markets, say Europe, it's relatively easy uh, for a flight from London to, say, Jakarta to avoid going over Russian or Ukrainian airspace. That's not an issue. But where it does become an issue is uh, for flights from Nordic markets, for example. So um, Finnair's Helsinki Bangkok has had to be rerouted. That's taking three hours longer. And even a flight, um, Philippines Airlines flights from the US to Manila, some of those have to be rerouted even um, and have to, have to do a stopover in Vancouver. So again, you know, if you're looking at longer flights and the fuel is at a higher cost anyway, you're really looking at the potential of having significantly higher flights, particularly for long haul markets. Yeah, absolutely. And we're starting to depress ourselves even more, Hannah. We've got used to doing this, haven't we? And then there's also the the, the knock-on impact onto the cost of cargo and transportation. A lot of airlines in our region and worldwide have managed to increase their cargo, the percentage of their revenues from cargo over the last two years when they haven't been able to carry many passengers. Um, But obviously, the the increase in jet fuel prices increased the cost of cargo and transportation. We also have these supply chain bottlenecks, particularly coming out of China at the moment. So there's going to be knock-on costs in terms of transportation of food products, commodities, that kind of thing. And these will hit 
you know, everywhere in terms of buying your food in the supermarket, your airline meals, your hotels, you know, those kinds of things are all going to be impacted by the rising cost of the food chain in, in, in its entirety. Yeah, exactly. And and not only is this impact, of course, in Southeast Asia, you know, it's globally. So then if you look at Europe, a key source market for coming into Southeast Asia, and you see consumers facing these higher costs, again, is that going to be a blocker for them? Are they instead going to perhaps travel closer to home or, or turn to somewhere else rather than um, face those additional costs that they might not have the budget for anymore? Totally agree. So let's have a, uh, a quick look at some of the looming economic headwinds. And I think the the main reason for this is, is Russia itself. Russia is the world's 12th largest economy. It's a G20 member. Um, in our region, in Asia Pacific, there are four G20 members that have larger economies than Russia. They are China, Japan, India, and South Korea. And two G20 members that have smaller economies, those are Australia and Indonesia. And Hannah, Indonesia is quite an interesting uh, case study here, isn't it? Because it is currently the chair of the G20, and it has a big event coming up later in the year. It does, yes. So um, they are scheduled to hold this G20 summit later in in Bali. And of course, they're kind of trapped um, in between a rock and a hard place. Um, you know, been lots of calls for Russia to be removed um, from the G20. I think US has been, US and many other leaders have threatened that they, they don't want to sit down with Putin in the same room, kind of understandably, at these summits. And this G20 was really something Indonesia has been gearing up for. They have been, you know, I think very protective even about their border policies, we largely think, to kind of protect this G20 event. And if it turns out to not be this massive event that they that they were hoping it for or the G20 presidency, such a big result, it, you know, I, I think they are looking on very, very cautiously to see whether it's actually going to be as... as beneficial for them to be chair of G20 this year as they thought it might have been. Yeah, I agree. So just very briefly, we'll look at the radiating effects of this war in, t- in terms of the two economies that are involved. Russia, as I said there, is the 12th biggest economy in the world. The World Bank is predicting that this year its GDP growth will be down about 11.2%, so it's lost more than a tenth of its economy. Ukraine's uh, GDP uh, drop forecast this year is about 45%, so that's almost half of its economy has disappeared. Uh, you know, Those impacts are going to be huge around the world, primarily because of the products that both countries export around the world. Now, we know that Russia is the third biggest producer of oil in the world. Much of that oil goes to Europe, but about 20% of it goes to China. And we know that if China catches an economic cold, then the rest of Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific will will likewise suffer. Um, But also, both countries are big commodities producers. They produce things like aluminium, iron ore, and palladium, which are used to make things like chips and uh, computers and smartphones, that kind of thing. And both are obviously very, very big wheat, corn and cereal producers, which in some of the countries in the region goes into things like noodle production. Indonesia is very, very worried at the moment about the, the supply of noodles in the country because the prices are going to rise and they already are rising. Um, so those are some of the impacts that we're going to see from that. And we're already seeing these tailwinds. I mean, even just looking at the news today, um, Singapore is tightened its monetary supply so that its, its uh, currency can appreciate against the US dollar. That's an attempt to, to try and head off inflation, which is a huge issue across the region. South Korea has 
increased its interest rates today. We haven't really seen interest rate rises in the region for some time. Uh, South Korea is leading the way on that. I think New Zealand has done that too. Thailand's media said yesterday that the government is now realizing it has absolutely no choice. I think those are the words in a full reopen of its economy because it realizes these headwinds up ahead. It has to try and generate more inbound income, particularly from tourism, but particularly from inbound investment as well. So, you know, these impacts are starting to, to crystallize. I think the Japanese yen has, has yesterday had its biggest single day fall for 20 years. So there are some vulnerable currencies in the region as well. And any countries that have high debt yields, uh, import high levels of food and commodities, you know, they're a little bit vulnerable at the moment. So every country is trying to support its currencies to prevent you know, the kinds of runs on currencies that we saw in the Asian financial crisis, which would have a, a huge regional impact. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at the World Bank, they re-released their, their forecast for 2022 last week. Um, and across Southeast Asia, they uh, they have revised downwards, really. So, uh, you know, previous forecasts were, um, they put together in last year for this year, that Malaysia was looking at 5.8%, that's downgraded to 5.5%. Vietnam from 6.5% to 5.3%. So that's a big drop. And even Thailand from 36 to 29 The only country that maintains its forecast is uh, Cambodia. Uh, so I'm sure our Cambodian listeners will be happy about that um, at 4.5%. But it, it, it is, is looking gloomy. I mean, you have to weigh against that. You have forecasts from people like the Asian Development Bank who have actually upgraded some of their forecasts. So some some banks are a little bit more optimistic. But in general, you know, growing inflation, Laos, for example, has got the highest inflation levels uh, for, I think, at least five years that it has now. You know, this, this is going to all lead to consumers having to tighten their belts, which doesn't really spell out good news for the region in terms of consumer demand for travel. No, you're right. And th those World Bank figures that you just mentioned there, those are the baseline uh, figures as well. They've actually put in uh, into their planning worst case scenarios as well, which precipitate even even higher drops in regional GDP. Um, so I suspect that we'll see those those forecasts revised you know, several times perhaps during this year. I, I guess the big factor is really what happens in China. We really need to see China's uh, approach to, to COVID-19, how that will change because you know, the economy in China is struggling. Various impacts uh, across the whole uh, economic sphere, particularly travel and tourism, is hit very, very hard. Um, and, and so this region really is anticipating a recovery when China reopens. But, you know, we have to understand, I think, that the Chinese travel and tourism sector is hit just as hard as everywhere else. Uh, and so that magic return of all these Chinese travelers, this, you know, this pent up demand everybody is hoping for, it might not be as, as strong and, and as fierce as, as everybody is hoping. So, you know, I think we have to prepare for the fact that we've, we've got to try and make money wherever we can, because relying on that Chinese return at the moment looks... Uh, it looks as though the hopes may be a little bit too high. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. So that's that's kind of where we are. And now, of course, where is this going to go? And we've, we've got some big questions, haven't we, Gary? Uh, I mean, the, the first one, obviously, is how long is this war going to last? Um, you know, and, and that's the big one. And, and nobody knows that. Nobody can predict that. Nobody can really prepare for that. Like we've seen for certain, as long as it lasts, there's still going to be impact. And even once it is over, of course, that's still going to impact the economy too. Yeah, I mean, what, how long this is going to last is, is just an open-ended question. Analysts seem to have no idea. It looks as though there's going to be a new escalation. Um, 
what are what are Russia's ultimate aims? We we don't even really know that. We don't know if it wants to to bifurcate Ukraine, whether it wants to go back and attack Kiev again. We we simply don't know. But as we mentioned earlier, Hannah, the cumulative effects of this going on much longer uh, will impact our region much much harder as it as it goes on, and the whole world as well. So. The, the hope is for some kind of brokered peace, but it, it, it's really unclear at the moment who would be able to broker that. It, it simply seems to be in, in the in the will of Putin and when he's he's got what he wants to achieve. Yeah, I mean, so the question linked to this is then how has this war altered global security, global alliances? You know, we have seen this very close alliance between Russia and China. Might that embolden China to, to make similar moves in APAC. And I think that's the other worry that, that many Asian countries here are, are really keeping their eye on as well. Um, you know, that potentially right now, everything is west-west from us. Are things going to come? Are tensions going to rise in the east? It's a, another unknown. Yeah, that's a good question to throw out there because I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. I think one of the issues that everybody has to be prepared for is, you know, the warning has come from Sri Lanka. Look at what's happening there at the moment. We have a, a complete economic collapse, a, an economy that is in free fall, a currency that's, that is, you know, basically worthless at the moment, a government that is a strong arm government, which is protests on the street, is trying to suppress those those protests. But but really, the, the entire situation there, the debt levels are huge. It's actually defaulted on its debt now. And you, again, that will have impacts in the region because who are its debtors? You know, who owns, who does Sri Lanka own money to? Well, of course, it'd be China, it'd be India, uh, it'd be other countries and other businesses as well. And the fact that this has happened to Sri Lanka, could it happen somewhere else? You would, you would really, really hope not um, because Sri Lanka's problems have been mounting for a number of years, actually. But, you know, there are some other countries in our region, you'd look probably at Myanmar there, um, where, you know, the, the situation is, is pretty dire too, economically. Yeah, I mean, and you know, looking at economy again, we've we've heard lots of uh, headlines talking about could there be potential stagflation, of course, stagnant economy with rising inflation. And yes, you know, like I was saying earlier, inflation rates are forecast to increase as well. Um, so that's that it's going to be a another hurdle for governments here, particularly, you know, as they have already spent a lot of money to keep the economy afloat during COVID-19 over the past couple of years, have they still got reserves in the bank to be able to to counter this? Yeah, and as you mentioned, their interest rate rises. They hurt, they hurt consumers and they hurt businesses as well. It increases the cost of borrowing. So businesses that need to borrow to try and recover out of the COVID uh, situation are going to find it much, much harder. Of course, that relates to airlines in, in some cases. Um, but consumers, you know, we, we know that in many countries, and Malaysia is a very good example, uh, levels of personal debt are pretty high. And if you increase the interest rates that consumers have to pay on their, their debts for their, their cars, their houses, their purchases, um, you know, that, that's really going to hurt their spending power, their discretionary spending power, and ultimately the, the cost of living. Um, so that's something I think we really have to watch out for in the coming months. And then bringing it back to travel, um, you know, we were talking about this increase in jet fuel and one of these potential impacts could be, are airlines going to be as fast to add back frequencies and routes if those operational costs are higher? I mean, I just saw a, an article um, talking about AirAsia earlier this morning and it was talking about how they were adding back routes to India, but they were talking about adding more routes kind of next year as well. It, to me, when I was reading this article, it seemed a little bit like they have stepped back a little bit from from that really ambitious, we're going to hit, you know, pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year. 
just seemed a little bit more cautious. And I do wonder if that is related to this. You know, they've really got to keep a very keen eye on those operational costs. Absolutely. If you listen to any um, full year um, report earnings for reportings from 2021, all travel businesses use the phrase leaner business, operational costs and, and cutting waste and, and managing efficiency within a business. That's been absolutely vital, but that continues to be vital. As you said there, in terms of rebuilding back frequencies, revenue management has become much, much more important for airlines. Now, they can't have lost leading flights. They simply can't afford it. So they are going to be looking at where the demand is going to be and where it's being sustained. And at the moment, it's really hard to, to discern those patterns. You know, some countries in our region have only been open for about a month. So it's kind of difficult to work out where the routes are going to actually develop and become stronger uh, over time. At the moment, that's very, very difficult to forecast. So, you know, being a, an airline revenue manager at the moment is uh, an incredibly difficult job. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't want that one. Um, another question, will all of this encourage more domestic travel? So as airfares get more expensive, are we going to see people again thinking, do you know what, I'm, I might stay at home this year. Maybe I'll plan for a trip next year, but Perhaps this year I'll stay a little bit closer to home. My wallet's being squeezed. Um, and not only that, you know, if they were planning to drive somewhere, if the cost of, of gas, of petrol is more as well, perhaps they may be looking to take shorter trips. They might not even take that very long road trip that they previously would have done. Perhaps they're going to stay closer to, to their main city instead. Yeah, I, th I think I think the, the the probable answer to that is absolutely yes. We'll have to again wait and see the, the evidence for that to play out. But you know, looking at the pictures from last weekend in, in Vietnam, uh, we've got uh, New Year holidays in large parts of our region at the moment where there's domestic uh, travel going on. So we'll look at those patterns perhaps next week and see you know what what's happening at the moment. Um, there was a report today, I think, in the Bangkok Post saying that Thai travelers are still reticent of traveling overseas for many reasons. One of them is cost. Um, so, you know, we may see Thai travelers over the coming months traveling more within their own country. That, that may happen here in Malaysia, too. You know, domestic travel at the moment is, is relatively strong here in Malaysia. But there is, you know, this still this wait and see, you know, is it, is it cost effective to travel overseas? Um, where are you going to go? And how are these costs going to rise? I think, you know, consumers themselves will be going to be making very, very difficult choices over the next few months. Um, because you have to try and weigh the fact that you do want to go and visit family and friends or you do want to take a holiday overseas. Um, but, you know, when is the right price? When is the right time to, to make a choice of your travel? And yeah, it's certainly not getting any easier than it was, even though the fact that the, the borders are reopened again. Yeah, I mean, and, and then the other question is, of course, then, is this going to impact who is going to visit? Are we going to see, instead of this focus on longer haul markets like Russia, Europe, um, are we going to see tourism boards, ministries looking at ASEAN countries instead as most countries within ASEAN are now open to fellow ASEAN countries, shorter flights, airlines potentially adding more connectivity, more connectivity. Could that be, uh, you know, a, a bigger focus rather than the long haul markets, which could be put off by higher flight prices, longer flights and of course these quite cumbersome entry restrictions that still exist for Southeast Asia it is still not a book your ticket and turn up are they instead going to look at other countries that are, are less hassle and cheaper it's a good it's a really good question because ordinarily in an ordinary year which we know this this certainly isn't um, you'd probably be able to de determine or, or discern the answer to those questions about now because you would start to see the booking patterns for the summer holidays in, in Europe and in 
North America, for example. But certainly one of the things that's happened more lately uh, as countries have reopened is that we just have much shorter booking windows than before. So people aren't booking as far ahead as they used to. Um, so you can't really tell right now how many people are going to be coming into our region from those, uh, those particular regions because they'll probably be booking much later. If you look at sentiment surveys, sentiment surveys you know, at the moment in Europe tend to show that Europeans are looking more at intra-European holidays this year than they were pre-pandemic. U.S. markets are quite difficult to discern at the moment, but there is a lot of uh, intra-U.S. travel at the moment. Really, really hard to say, Hannah. And, you know, we said that it's a difficult job being a revenue manager for an airline, but you know, selling destinations in Southeast Asia at the moment, being a tourism board, it's a difficult proposition because, like you said, it's still not as easy to travel as it used to be. Everybody is competing for the same tourists, and their demand is obviously lower than it was before. So it is a bit of a race to the bottom and, you know, it's going to be very, very challenging. There will be pockets that I think will succeed. You know, Bali does seem to be drawing back some travellers. Thailand will definitely draw back travellers. Um, but other countries, you know, they're going to be competing against each other for, for the remainder of these diminished markets. And, you know, we keep coming back to the same point. With, without the, the big Northeast Asian markets travelling en masse, um, it's, it's going to be a difficult summer, I think. Mm. So overall then, it... it does seem like we're taking a bit of a gloomy note again then are we on on the current situation (laughs) just for a change this is a big triple whammy so the impacts of COVID were always going to be uh, lingering and they were going to take time to to settle down I don't think there's any doubt about everybody knows that airlines know that hotels know that the um the OTAs know that even though they're trying to be positive but you add those overlays of the disappearance of the Chinese market and at the moment still the, the Korean and the Japanese markets and then the war in in Russia, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a big big hurdles for the for the region to overcome. And you know, it could come down to the fact that we are again promoting domestic travel much more heavily, and we have to really make much stronger moves on intra ASEAN travel. I think those will be vital. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, overall, there there are a lot of headwinds, um, but when I look at where we are now versus where we were this time last year. You know, it's, it's a completely different story. You look at April, so much reopening has happened across the region. So much domestic travel is gearing up, like you were saying, Gary, this week. is It's Songkran, it's Khmer New Year, it's Pimai, Tingyan. We've got Easter coming up. We've got Hari Raya. We've got Lebaran. Um, reunification Day in, in, in Vietnam, May Day. Um, I think April is going to be a good month. Um, but like you say, where do, where do we go after April? And, and and that will just be this fallout of, of of how things happen and potential changes in the market or not. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think, you know, if, if we look back to the, you know, where we were really just shaking our heads a year ago in terms of, you know, when are we going to get out of the situation? When are we actually going to start to be able to make plans? When are people, when does the travel industry and when the travelers themselves can actually have choices again? And those choices are coming back. It's just a different set of challenges now, and at least those options are on the table. You're right. There is going to be much more domestic travel. I, th- I think domestic travel over the next few months is going to be really, really strong in some of the larger countries. Um, it's whether that intra-ASEAN travel can support that. Uh, we'd have to hope so. We'd have to hope that the tourism boards are really going to focus on intra-ASEAN travel rather than spending a lot of their money on the longer-haul markets, which, you know, for the reasons we've just discussed, Hannah, there are going to be bigger challenges in, in the coming months. Uh, let's look at our neighbours, you know, because people want to travel. Malaysians want to go to Thailand. Thais want to go to Vietnam. 
Vietnamese might want to go to Bali. You know, let's try and tap into that because I think for the foreseeable future, that's where we could we could make some progress on bookings. Agreed. So that brings us to a close of our special Russia Ukraine edition. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, if you don't want to depress yourself too much, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And if you do tune in via Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as around two-thirds of our listeners actually do, please give us a quick rating and a review, as that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to talking to you then. Thank you.